Thread. God's truth tying together all the pieces of your life. Thread is the broadcast of Dr. Chuck Quinley. Thread. Hi, I'm Chuck Quinley. Welcome back to the Thread Podcast, episode 80. Woo. I want to say thanks to everybody who's been writing in, and for those of you in different countries of the world who are listening to the Thread Podcast and hopefully passing on the news to your friends about the podcast. When I was young in my service to the Lord, I really wish I had had somebody to mentor me, and I I recognized my need for it, I wanted it, and I just didn't find that many people who, for whatever reason, I don't know if they didn't see the priority or they didn't feel competent themselves, but uh, I wanted a mentor, and I determined that that would be the thing I gave myself to, as I got more maturity and I learned some things through life and through the Lord's work in my life and through the Word, uh, that I would pass on everything I could to those who came behind me. So that's what this podcast is all about. Whether you're called to serve the Lord in a full-time church-style ministry, whether you serve in a nonprofit agency, or whether uh, you serve in the marketplace or in education or wherever God has you, he wants you to be an influence, and I want to do all I can to lift up for you insights um, that will help you as a leader. And I feel like the best place I can turn to that is to give you insights from the Scriptures, because business books come and go, and uh, human ideas about leadership are culturally influenced, and the Word of God lasts forever. So we've been looking at the book of Acts and looking at the patterns of the early church. They're not always... Uh, a perfect model of what we should do, but often they are because they were the first generation you know, of Christians. As soon as Jesus had taught and laid down uh, the ideas of what his movement would be about, this was the first group, the very first generation, the first few years of following Christ. So they're the closest to the source, and I think we learn a lot through them. Okay, the last episode of uh, Thread was in Acts chapter 5. And it was about the necessity of conflict, not just the inevitability of conflict, but the importance of conflict, just the pregnancy of conflict, how a conflict can, can take a situation suddenly in an entirely new direction if you keep your head and if, the, if your participation in that conflict uh, is done on the basis of principles and on a carefully thought out actions with self-control, you can see a lot of breakthroughs. Today we're going to look at Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. We're going to see a situation where, uh, where external threats have not deterred the church. This is our very first internal threat. It's a threat of division, and it's the most serious kind of threat against God's people uh, and against uh, any kind of a, a community. Of faith. It's the thing that Jesus prayed about in John 17. It was the key focus of his prayer was, Oh, Father, let them remain unified the way we are unified. Because if we've got that unity, we've got power, anointing, authority, influence, the gifts of the Spirit flow. Uh, we're, you know, we're superhuman uh, in those times. And when we lose our um, unity, we lose our momentum. And it breaks down the spiritual authority that we have in the culture and in the land because we can't even get agreement 
among ourselves. And this has always been a problem in the church. We have been attacked from the very first year until today uh, with church splits, ministry splits, not just on the ministry side, but just brothers, uh, brothers in the Lord, dividing, dividing, dividing. It is a devil's work, and we have to be careful when we're in a situation like this. So here's the situation that they were facing. On the day of Pentecost, people had gathered from all over the world. All the world in those days, the known world, spoke Greek. And uh, when Alexander the Great conquered the world, he left behind the legacy of a unifying world language, and that language was Greek. The Romans followed after him. They spoke Latin, but they saw the value of a Greek-speaking world, and they didn't want to mess that up. So the, the, uh, the Jews around the world spoke Greek. The Jews in the Holy Land spoke Hebrew. And uh, while you know, they could learn each other's languages, the, there was a cultural influence that came on people that moved away. And uh, you can just imagine all that. So all these people had come home for their Jewish celebration on the day of Pentecost. That's when the Holy Spirit fell. And that's when Peter stepped outside and preached. And God gave a great harvest. And people joined the body of Christ and came into Christ were baptized as believers, 5,000, over 5,000. This is men alone that are gathering every day in the temple and their wives and their children. This is a massive audience and also a huge multicultural spiritual community. They're trying to know each other. They're trying to blend all of these different uh, languages and cultures and expectations. And, you know, growth has its challenges, and they've been so successful. I mean, an instant influx of thousands. It happened in one day. And these guys are trying to learn to, to manage this. And then something happens. It had never happened before. And that is critique. You know, up to this point, up until the day that this uh, experience takes place in chapter six, everyone's just been so grateful to be in the body of Christ. They just, you know, can't believe this new life that they found in the Lord. But on that day, they had something that they didn't like, and a group began to speak. Acts chapter 6, verse 1, Now in those days when the number of disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because the Hellenist widows were neglected in the daily distribution of food. Now when critique happens, Critique is very important in the life of a leader. Um, when it happens, try not to flinch over it. Nobody likes it, okay? But understand the value of it. The critique will always tell you the truth about a, a couple of things. One, uh, it always reveals something about the one who's giving the critique. Even if it's totally off base about you, it is telling you something about what's in the heart of the one giving the critique. It'll also tell you the truth about the state of your relationship with that person. When you watch how they control or don't control the choice of words, the thing, you know, when their heart gets stirred and their blood goes up, uh, they're liable to say some things that has been, you know, these things have been in their minds for a while. And now because of the emotion of the moment, it comes out and you can see the truth about your relationship. Secondly, it usually has an element of truth in it. Even if it's uh, overblown, there's usually something in there that you need to hear. And, and it was true what they said 
that uh, the Hellenistic widows in the thousands of people that were uh, gathered there from the other nations, uh, the local people, you know, the disciples know they're Hebrews. They know the, uh, the people from Israel. They know them. They're relationally connected. So it would be very easy to overlook some outside widows because you just don't know them or you don't know them well or you, you know, you're just not connected to their world. So the disciples actually accept the critique. Uh, the th- a third thing critique always does is it frees us from overgrasping and it grounds us in reality. And you start to realize, oh, the church isn't heaven. Uh, Christian relationships are not completely in the kingdom of God yet. We're partly in it and part of it is still waiting to come. And so the disciples reach out now, and they have to deal with this. Now, how this daily feeding program, daily, think about it, daily feeding program for the widows, how this thing got started, we're not told. It was somebody's good idea, and they knew that Jesus, uh, the law required you to care about widows. They knew that Christ really cared about widows and orphans. So they make them a priority, and you can read in the, um, in the other epistles, it, this became an important ministry in the early church because a widow and an orphan, these are people that are cut off from society's normal means of support. They've lost the man, which was definitely the breadwinner in those days. They've lost their covering. Uh, they're vulnerable, and bad things can happen to them. So the church steps in, and Christian people put our, our arms around them, and we love them. And... Um, so the 12 look at this situation and they realize their shortcomings. And, you know, wow, the power of humility to keep unity in the body. These guys did not pull out the Old Testament text and start preaching about touch not mine anointed. You know, they didn't look at this crowd and say, you ungrateful rabble. You know, just a few weeks ago, you didn't even know the Lord. We've, we've done so many good things for you. And now here we are trying to deal with the Jewish authorities who want to kill us, we're beaten, we got scars on our back from our leadership, and you are whining about this thing, you know. But they didn't do that. They didn't get personal. They didn't let their pride get in the way. Um, And I think it's interesting, too, and it's important that a leader has a number of conflict um, strategies and that you don't use the same one every time because this is a conflict. They're in one. Now, they are also in a conflict with the ruling Jewish authorities. And when they're in conflict with the priestly group and the temple group, they choose compete. I mean, they, they go nose to nose and they push. Now, these people have risen up within the body and they are complaining and they're grumbling. But the disciples do not compete. They don't say it's us versus you. They choose the exact opposite. They accommodate and that's the other end of the of the scale. And they say, "Okay, we're um, we're going to yield to you on this. We're going to listen to what you are saying." And verse two starts with, and this is the first time ministry has ever been shared outside the twelve. It's the first time they've shared responsibility with anyone else. It's the first time there's ever been a development program set up by the apostles to bring others up in their abilities, and they stumble onto it because of a critique, because of a conflict. You know, I said it was a pregnant moment. And this thing, they turn it, instead of allowing it to drive them apart and to break down the fellowship among the people, 
they use this opportunity to create something uh, that takes them forward. It multiplies leaders. Uh, and I'm amazed always. Uh, actually, this was something that used to drive my dad crazy because my dad was uh, the senior partner in a, an international accounting firm. And when I first entered the ministry and I would start to ease into that world of the professional clergy and I would explain things to my dad, he was always so puzzled at the lack of a developmental strategy, that there's no system for taking uh, you know, a young person and, and building them up in spiritual graces and in the skills that a leader needs and teaching them how to organize and manage things. There's just nothing. You, know, you go from praying and you feel God's calling you, and the next thing you know, you're in charge of something and you don't know what you're doing, and you just muddle through it for life. Um, and I've met, you know, overseers of nations, and I ask them, tell me about your plan for developing the next generation. And I get blank looks over and over, country after country. And every now and then you meet a person who's got a system, it's in their heart, it drives their actions, and you can always tell the difference. They've got an endless pool of good people, there's positive energy going up, they're not worried about being taken over by somebody or someone rising up. They've got, they've got big visions, and they are after you know, expansion, and they've got this pool of leaders that they can use. And that's what happens in the New Testament church, and it happens because of this event. In verse 2, the 12 call for a meeting. And they say, it's not desirable that we should leave the Word of God and serve the tables. So brothers... Seek out from among yourself seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, and we will appoint them over this business, and we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. The twelve apostles realign their priorities, and this is really important. Uh, they, they clarify their values, and they say, okay, our value is not in going out and buying food and supervising someone to cook and then packing lunches and going house to house and delivering and spending time with the ladies, that's not our highest value. Jesus taught us his ways. Jesus has given us his anointing, and when we put hands on people, they get healed. We have miracles that follow us. We, we are able to be the public face of this movement and push it forward and that is our highest contribution to this group. So choose some people to do the other things. We're not going to be involved in administrative matters. Uh, we're going to be involved. This is our area of service. And it was very important that they realigned their priorities. Um, another thing that they, they aligned was to clarify the value of being a person who serves others. Now, they had had no trouble in being the ones who served these widows. They didn't mind that job. They had done it all along. Now they were getting criticized for the way they handled it. But they, you know, Jesus taught them to wash feet, and they understood the value of being a servant as a leader, that Christians don't have two tiers. We don't have people who are like the praying leader, and that's all you do, and then the other ones are the serving leaders. And we will see these apostles, and they will continue to serve people, and they will continue to love people. But, you know, we only have so many hours, and we only have the ability to do 
if you want to be really effective, you've got to figure out the one thing that you can do your very best at. It's the way you've been wired. It's the anointing God has given you. It's the thing that is natural to you. And do that thing with all your heart and try not to do very much besides that thing. So when the disciples look at the service ministry, they don't say, oh, just choose some guys to do this. They're very clear that servant, uh, servant ministry and service and mercy, this is an important spiritual ministry. And that it has to be entrusted. You, you can only find credible people to handle this. But that they themselves, their value was that they had walked with Christ for four years and they had to widely disciple and transmit the teachings of Christ. Uh, and this would be accompanied by power gifts so everybody could know this wasn't just a human doctrine, but this was the Son of God alive from the dead ministering through their hands. So formerly there were just 12 leaders. Now there's going to be 19 leaders, and uh, they decide to share the ministry, that a big portion of what they've been doing every single day, they're going to stop doing that, and they're going to let other people handle that. Now, if you'd like to share ministry, there's some things you're going to have to do if you want to follow their pattern, which was a healthy pattern. There's six things. Let me just point these out real quick. Number one, you need to decide that it's a good thing to do. You have to commit your heart that sharing work with others, not just dumping. There's a difference in dumping and delegating. You know, that empowering other people, raising them up and giving them a platform for service, that that's a good thing. Now, I'm telling you, it's got risk. They could have their own little following. They could pull away from you. They could make the division uh, within the group even worse, you know. And so they've, that's, that's what they tell the people. you got to find good people. These have to be a certain kind of person. But in your heart, if you're ever going to succeed in having lots of people help you with the load of whatever you're leading, first thing is you have to decide that's a good thing to do and commit your heart that you want to do it. Second thing is be sure you get enough people to do the job well. You know, there were 12 of them. They had a lot of things to do, and one of their things was the, this feeding program. So they said, if we had seven guys and that's all they did, that, that'll be enough. So they, they wanted seven, so you get enough people to do the job. Number three, you're going to need good people. And I'm telling you, good people are hard to find. And he, you know, he gives them a good outline there. You want good people, good character, self-motivated. You want the right kind of people. Number four, you need spiritually full people. He says these people need to be full of the Holy Spirit, not just... They've been trained to do this in the secular world, or this is a natural gift of theirs. He said, everything that God's people do together is a spiritual ministry, and we need people who are uh, equipped spiritually to handle these kind of, of loads. Um, he wanted settled, number five, he wanted settled, discerning people to be in leadership. But number six, he kept a, they kept a clear chain of command. They said, you find the people among yourself. Who are they giving it to? The Hellenists. They said, I tell you what, we're going to let the Hellenists take care of the Hebrew widows. So you Hellenists, choose seven Hellenists. We, we yield to you, but we're still the chain of command. You pick them, we will appoint them. We will lay our hands on them. And then, once again, they clarified their role in verse 4. They said, we're going to be spiritual guides not administrators, and that's an important priority 
and it's a perpetual need in senior leadership because we end up, what we've got now around the world, uh, as I look at it, we've got active, stressed out, over busy leaders um, who are not that calm, centered person. You know, you need somebody quietly standing at the center mast of the ship, hearing from God, pointing the way, keeping the values clear, defining the work, defining the authority of others, keeping a spiritual focus as a spiritual leader. But what I see as I travel around are a bunch of CEOs, busy bees. You know, spiritual war is real, and ministry leaders have to be engaged and they have to battle these obstacles, not through seminars or everybody go get a doctorate, but through prayer, more prayer, prayer for our senior leaders, not more activity. This feeding program was a really important part of the early church, and I'm sure that once the apostles passed this load to others, they found themselves with a whole big burst of energy for their continued confrontations with the religious system of their day, because that one they had to deal with and they had to do it right. Now, something else that we find in verse 5 says the saying pleased the whole multitude. People want to do something for the Lord. And in order to do that, leaders have to yield a measure of authority. And they have to create a space for these people. They have to let the people rise up, give them an area, and then back out of it and let the giftings come up inside those people. You know, you know who learns the most in every class? The teacher. If you could have small classes and dozens of teachers, that would be a really great education system. The students would learn a lot, but the teacher, now you'd have a dozen teachers all learning because the teacher studies it. They're motivated from the inside about that material. And that's what we see happening to these people. These seven grow up into their own ministry. They've got a faith, a boldness, an anointing. The church now has a leadership development system. The Hellenists, think about these people. They've come from all over the known world. They are now released because they've just been sitting there passively being served by the Jerusalem crowd. Now their energy is released, and in the end, we've got prayed up, rested leaders They are calm, they're powerful in their leadership, they're fit to do God's work, they've got the power and full faith that they need in their spirits. The Scripture says the ministry of God's Word, look at uh, verse 7, the Word of God spread, the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and even a great many of the priests. This is their their greatest uh, adversaries, and it says, a great number of the priests became obedient to the faith. You see, the ministry of God's Word is going out. Kingdom truths are being planted under a powerful anointing because the gospel, the most important ministry in the world, is releasing the power of God that brings salvation. And as a bonus, we end up with powerful acts of mercy and community transformation. Because this other batch of leaders, they raise up, and as they rise up, they're, they're being raised up by the apostles, and as they go up, you know, we realize that, wow, we can have it all. If we learn to build a spirit-filled community with working teams, and if our leaders will release authority and focus on developing those people, and then secondly, if when there's critique, 
Our leaders will skillfully handle critique and internal conflict. We can just continue to make progress. You know, when um, when you have a leadership meltdown, again, sorry if your ministry is not the church because I've spent about 30 years in church ministry. And so that's where most of my illustrations are. But, um, you know, about 90% of the time when a church splits, if you really study the case well, the pastor did it. Now, he would never want that to happen, but it's his overreaction to critique. He's got a little bit of pushback from the people, and he doesn't know what to do with it, and he just explodes it. So now we, we see the apostles with a cool head, understanding that they need to focus on their spiritual core, keep themselves right, because it's a very demanding season in the ministry. They're being attacked, lives are at stake as we move into the very next section. Blood is shed. Christians start to lose their, their lives. And these men need to stay focused on senior leadership. Well, that's all for this episode of Thread. If you'd like to write me, contact me directly, chuck at quinley.com. See you next time on Thread.